Okay, recording. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Transplant Infectious Disease Podcast. My name is Shmuel Shalham, and today I will be interviewing Bill Werbel. He's an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Disease, working on the Transplant and Oncology Infectious Disease team. We'll be talking about his journey toward transplant infectious disease and also about his work. Before we do that, uh, I'd like to dive into a case and go through some of the elements of it. This is a 62-year-old man with history of AML, acute myelogenous leukemia. He underwent a bone marrow transplant. Specifically, it was a non-myeloablative peripheral blood stem cell transplant. His status regarding CMV at baseline was CMV IgG positive. The donor was CMV IgG negative, which means that his CMV that he has in his body has a chance of reactivating, but the immune system that he gets as part of his transplantation has not seen CMV before, and that puts him at increased risk for both CMV viremia and complications of CMV, including end organ disease. So a situation that is opposite of what you would see in a solid organ transplant, where a donor positive recipient negative is the person at highest risk for CMV complicate bone marrow transplant recipient. The highest risk is in those individuals that are CMV recipient positive, but donor negative. So historically, prophylaxis has been challenging in bone marrow transplant recipients because the predominant toxicity of valgancyclovir or gancyclovir is bone marrow toxicity. And of course, as the new bone marrow is coming in, having a, uh, a drug with toxicity against it is challenging. That has changed with the development of latermavir. And latermavir is a drug that has activity against CMV, but does not have activity against the other herpes viruses. So when it's given as prophylaxis, one should also give an anti-herpes virus along with it, such as acyclovir or valacyclovir. The other aspect that's important with latermavir is it does not have bone marrow toxicity, so it can be safely used in such patients. It does have some side effects, generally GI, and it can have the potential for drug interactions. Specifically, it's a moderate inhibitor of cytochrome enzyme CYP3A4, and hence can increase levels of drug metabolized through that pathway. For example, cyclosporin, tacrolimus, sirolimus. It's also an inducer of CYP2C9 and 2C19 and can decrease levels metabolized through those pathways, for example, voriconazole. One other issue with drug interactions is that co-administration of latermavir with cyclosporin, but interestingly, not tacrolimus or sirolimus, leads to increased levels of latermavir. These interactions are relatively manageable with alteration of doses. So with the assistance of a good pharmacist, latermavir can be given despite co-administration of those medications. However, it needs to be done thoughtfully and as part of a team. Now, the reason that latermavir is approved by FDA for this indication, which is primary prophylaxis of CMV in 
CMV recipients that are seropositive is based on a study, uh, a series of studies, but I think most importantly among those is one by Marty et al., which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine back in 2017. This was a blinded randomized control trial of latermavir versus placebo in CMV seropositive HSCT recipients. So just like the person that we're talking about here. And in that trial, latermavir was associated with fewer episodes of clinically significant CMV infection or requirement for premature discontinuation of therapy. And the numbers were 37.5% versus 60.6% in the placebo. And that was statistically significant. Even more impressive was an evaluation of all-cause mortality in that trial showed that latermavir prophylaxis was associated with a lower risk of death at 24 weeks, and the hazard ratio was 0.58. Confidence intervals did not cross one. P-value was 0.04. So taken together, many organizations have now gone on and used latermavir as primary prophylaxis in their patients. It's now approved by guidelines both in Europe and in the U.S., and the recommendations are to use it for patients at risk, such as the one that I described. It's not universally done across all centers yet, and not all insurance companies pay for it. So it's, it's an evolving area, but I would say that more and more over the past few years, we've seen that become more of a standard. How long to keep somebody on it? That typically it's about 100 days. And again, while somebody's on latermavir prophylaxis, they need to be on prophylaxis for other herpes viruses using acyclovir or valacyclovir if they're at risk for those viruses. Now, the other thing that should be noted about latermavir is that there is a relatively low hurdle for development of resistance. So for example, somebody with end organ CMV disease, that would be a person that using latermavir could be problematic in, and somebody with a high viral load, again, could be problematic. Uh, sort of a rule of thumb is if the viral load is over a thousand, then one should really be concerned that the breakthrough on latermavir can happen due to resistance. So in a primary prophylaxis situation, that's generally not going to be the situation because they're going to be uh, at a very low or no level of CMV that's detected. But if treating CMV viremia, for example, that could be a concern. On with this case, several months after the transplantation, the uh, patient developed GI symptoms, and those consisted of diarrhea, abdominal pain, and a CMV PCR was done and was found to be at 11,000. The patient had evaluation with a flexible sigmoidoscopy at the time and was found to have graft-versus-host disease and no evidence of CMV. They were in the gut. They were treated with valgancyclovir initially at induction dose to get the viral load under control. And then when the viral load became close to undetectable, it was changed over to a maintenance dose. That maintenance dose was continued, but meanwhile, the patient's graft-versus-host disease continued to be problematic and they were not responsive to steroids. So they received the drug called ruxolitinib, and this is a uh, JAK inhibitor, and trade name could be Jackafy. And that got their GVHD under control. Meanwhile, the CMV, however, started to have increased CMV viremia. And that's been described in patients that are receiving ruxolitinib. Patients that have received that drug do have a uh, 
an incidence that is elevated of CMV viremia. It's similar to other immunosuppressive therapies, and it's hard to know if it's the uh, ruxolitinib that's doing it, or maybe the high doses of steroids that they had received prior to that, or uh, their net state of immunosuppression. But that drug, ruxolitinib, has been associated with CMV viremia and patients that are receiving it, bone marrow transplant patients that are receiving it for GVHD treatment should have their CMV monitored. The patient remained on cyclovir for many months at maintenance dose mostly, and then developed increased GI symptoms. After their GVHD had been controlled, all of a sudden things seemed to flare up again, and they went and had a uh, another flexible sigmoidoscopy, and this time it showed that there were ulcerations associated with CMV findings on histopathology, the CMV viral load was less than a thousand. It was positive, but it was less than a thousand in the uh, 600 to 1000 range. And that brings up a couple of interesting points that are worth talking about. One is you can have extensive CMV disease in the gut and not have very dramatic CMV viral load elevation. Sometimes you can even have a negative CMV viral load in the bloodstream while having fairly extensive GI disease. So the compartment where the uh, damage is being done in the GI tract may not be reflective in the bloodstream where the uh, CMV viral load can be uh, modest or even negative. So that's one issue. Second issue is with patients such as this, although a uh, colonoscopy or a flexible sigmoidoscopy is a little bit of a production because they have to do the prep, they have to come in, they have to get it. Still, it is hard to guess at what they have and doing the procedure with the biopsies can be incredibly instructive, as was in this case. The um, question now comes is, okay, what are we going to do with this patient who's been on CMV at a maintenance dose with valgancyclovir, and do we use an alternative drug such as foscarnate or meribivir? One drug that, as we discussed, should not be used is latermavir because the risk of developing resistance is quite high. So in this particular case, and we'll discuss it a little bit later during the uh, interview with Dr. Werbel, the decision was to use IV gancyclovir as perhaps the delivery of the oral valgancyclovir just wasn't getting good enough levels because of absorption issues. And IV gancyclovir was used and it was used successfully and the patient had a good outcome. A little bit about the other options that were not used, foscarnate, that's a drug that's available by IV. It's effective against CMV that is resistant to gancyclovir or valgancyclovir is associated with toxicities and most important of those are electrolyte abnormalities and renal abnormalities, renal toxicity. Another drug that was considered in this patient is meribivir. This is a drug that was recently approved. Trade name is Livtensity and it's indicated for treatment of adults and pediatric patients 12 or older and weighing at least 35 kilograms with post-transplant CMV infection or disease that's refractory to treatment with either gancyclovir or valgancyclovir, cydofovir, or foscarnate. The way this drug works is a UL protein kinase, so it inhibits viral assembly. The main toxicities are dyscusia, GI upset, and drug interactions. And again, it's approved for treatment of resistant refractory CMV. Challenges with this drug are that many hospitals and healthcare systems do not have it on their formulary yet, and insurance companies are sometimes 
reluctant to pay for this drug. So putting all that together for this particular patient, IV ganselectivir was used and it was actually successful. Today we have Bill Werbel joining us. Bill, tell us about yourself. Great. Thanks, Shmuel, for the invitation. This is exciting. So uh, my name is Bill. I'm a just finished my first year as a transplant ID doctor at Johns Hopkins. And in terms of my background, I a guy originally from New York and uh, made my way up and down the East Coast and then in the Midwest for parts of our training adventures. I guess in the medical sense, I went to Mescal, Michigan, and then I went to residency at Northwestern, did a chief residency there. And then I came to Hopkins for infectious disease fellowship. And I've stayed on doing research and now seeing patients. Great. So um, I was reviewing your uh, publications and I saw that you spent some time at a small institution in uh, the Boston area as an undergrad, was it? Then you were involved in something that was very interesting about barefoot running. Yeah, it's a very random backstory, but I actually was recruited to Harvard to run track and I was on the track team briefly. And then had a lot of injuries and kind of stopped and lost my way, I think, in a lot of ways and ended up linking up with a guy named Dan Lieberman, who was a evolutionary biologist and anatomist. And I ended up working, sort of interning in his lab. And then we ended up working together for years, which is one of the most formative, probably research experiences of my life. And had like a little, started as a mom and pop, like my little senior undergrad thesis thing that ended up becoming a paper eventually the cover of nature, looking at the impact of wearing shoes or not and how that affects our biomechanics and the forces we experience during running. And we did a lot of cool stuff together. Worked with athletes in the Boston area and then actually went to Kenya and worked with some school children who hadn't had not been exposed to footwear and took a lot of fun videos and stills and measured their feet. And I was uh, surprising that something that Sounds so random could become so interesting. So a few years ago, there was a lot of excitement about barefoot running and minimalist running. And I think Chris McDougall had written a uh, book about it, about the Tara Omara. Were you involved in any of that? I'm more of a peripheral character, but like Chris came by the lab. A lot of people came by the lab and did a lot of interesting stuff. But we were probably part of publicizing that in like a more legit scientific sense. Dan in particular, who's really a maven. There's a very short version is, turns out that wearing shoes does change how your body sort of experiences and interacts with the reaction forces during running and changes some of the musculature. So there are aspects of that that are probably a little, little maladaptive, but I think there's a lot of gray in whether this is something we all should be doing it. Actually, people can hurt themselves and, you know, pros and cons. Pros and cons. So uh, how did a, uh, a start in a field like that transition into uh, infectious disease? What drew you to the field and how did you get further drawn into transplant infectious disease? Yeah, it's one of those things that uh, as it's happening seems very random, but in retrospect, there's some linearity. So that background and the science I was doing was actually about evolutionary biology and a lot of sort of host environment type stuff. And when I went to med school, I uh, was just sort of feeling around like anyone else. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. But towards the end of it, I had some pretty impactful 
exposures, both in content and in mentors, people who didn't even realize they were probably being influences at the time. But as a third year medical student, I had back to back, I had a, a, a month of transplant surgery and then transplant infectious diseases. And the group in Michigan is really in both divisions, really impressive. So there are a couple of guys, Mike Englesby, Amit Mather, and Satishna Digg, who were attending in the two transplant surgery fellows who really, I think, exposed me to a lot of transplant medicine at the time. And I was like, this is insane. I mean, you know, if you go in and you assist, you're like first assist in the beginning, like opening a case for liver transplants or, you know, doing things like that, watching somebody do a donor nephrectomy in like 20 minutes, you know, like things like that are just really amazing. You know, kidney making urine on the table, stuff like that. So that was very, very impactful. And then I realized, particularly as I was back to back with that, and then Kevin Gregg was attending when I was on transplant ID. I realized I was probably more the, the thinker and, you know, thinking about bad humors and stuff that happened in the context of transplant than the person who was doing the connecting and disconnecting. So I, I think that was more of like a almost transplant medicine rapid immersion and then understanding that I actually appreciated the cognitive side of it. And there were a lot of good mentors in ID at Michigan who were pretty impactful. So that's like, Got, I thought like I wanted to do some sort of immunocompromised transplant thing. And I did think about it in the time, hearkening back to this sort of evolutionary biology aspect. And, you know, it's an arms race, you know, and we're tying in the arms race, we're tying someone's arm behind their back mm-hmm. or, or immunocompromised. So I, I thought that was very interesting. And then in Northwestern, I was trying to decide between doing hematology or bone marrow transplant or ID. I met with a bunch of people about that. And, uh, a woman named Jane Winter, who's a very eminent hematologist. I spoke with her a little about becoming a blood doctor and then eventually worked more with Tina Stoser, who's a great doc at Northwestern and became kind of a mentor for me in some research we did together in the transplant ID space. And I, again, found that I liked having the concept of there's something outside of us that we're trying to keep out or fight as opposed to we're fighting ourselves, which is the case with mm-hmm. malignancies. They're also harder to fix sometimes. So that's, I think, how I really ended up there. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it, I think we have in somewhat a similar origin story in that I uh, was also interested in hematology and particularly leukemia and bone marrow transplant. But at some point I realized that the part of it that really attracted me was the infectious disease supportive care. And I was also attracted to surgery, but I very quickly realized that if I was going to actually help patients, that it wouldn't be with using a bovi or putting in sutures, that that was not something that, that I could do safely. Yeah. I don't think that's probably not my, that I knew eventually that was not going to be my strength. Even though I didn't mind doing it. I was like, is there people who are much better at that than I could be? Yeah. You know, it's, it's one of the, it's one of those things like if you practice at it a ton, you can probably get adequate who wants an adequate surgeon? Yeah. And people, these people are obviously, we know them well. They, they live and breathe it. They're excellent examples of, of what they do. So I was thinking, Shmuel, about what you just mentioned about something I remember when I was doing hematology work and I was at resident is like giving lectures to the medical students, little chalk talks. And I realized one of the things I really liked doing was comparing people with AML versus ALL. And really understanding like, this is actually why we give this prophylaxis. You know, this is mm-hmm. like, there are things that, oh, just even at a medicine resident level, like, oh, these are the same. Like, these are not the same. Mm-hmm. So, talking mm-hmm. about that, I really 
again, put me more in this ID world about how, what are the complications are going to experience that we can prevent. Yeah. And how the, uh, impairing different parts of the immune system can, uh, really lead you down different pathways in terms of the, uh, infections that people are, are at risk for and develop. So, um, then you were at, you came to Hopkins and you were a fellow, one of our strongest fellows, uh, then they, uh, they made the wise decision to keep you on. And what was the, uh, process like transitioning from fellow to, uh, attending? Interesting. I think it was a strange time. It was also pandemic times, you know, mm-hmm. and I also had a strange quirk in this process in that I did a fourth research year, which was facilitated by the pandemic in, in a way, uh, where I was totally remote for my fourth year of fellowship. And I was, I was living in Boston uh, secretly. Uh, people knew about it, but that was during this zoom time where everyone was sort of keeping in touch by computer. And I felt sort of still in the fold, even though I was gone. In terms of the transition, the clinical side was, oh, actually, nested story is that I was nervous because I'd been doing this year abroad, you know, wasn't or abroad, year 200 miles north. Uh, Massachusetts is uh, its own colony. It's island, yeah. But I actually worked with um, some Nicole Theodoropoulos by way of Robin Avery, our colleague, was allowed me to do some work at UMass doing uh, ID attending. So I did like three, four weeks of attending at UMass Worcester, which was uh, really good to stay in the mix and also help it. So when I eventually transitioned, I didn't feel super out of it. But in terms of the transition as, as a, for the clinical side of things, I was still nervous and it's like, you know, you have to put on your big boy pants with these very complicated people. But I knew that I had a really supportive environment with like very accomplished people like you and Robin Avery and and also uh, more junior folks who I knew that I could bounce things off. And I bet you folks who listen to this podcast or even you in your history, like you may have had this little nested group of people, maybe similar vintage who you bounce things among somewhat informally in a HIPAA compliant way to make sure like, am I crazy about managing this this way or not? And that was actually really helpful. So colleagues at Hopkins, junior folk at that way definitely kept me from uh, being too overwhelmed by the prospect of taking care of complex transplant patients. Yeah, I think one of the really fantastic things about transplant infectious disease is that maybe we should have as our uh, theme song, the Liverpool theme song of uh, You'll Never Walk Alone, that that really uh, we do work as groups of people and we do run cases by each other and you're you're never really alone. The bottom line is the attending does have to make the final call, but but you're never alone in that there's formal case presentation conferences that we have at, at Hopkins where we talk about complicated cases for the transplant team on a Monday for anything that's infectious disease, including the transplant team on a Thursday, get a lot of different people's opinion, have multiple neurons synergize. But also, uh, I think that helps both the uh, younger people that are less experienced as they learn from uh, experienced doctors that have seen things. And then the older doctors like it's hard to, for myself to think of myself as an older doctor, but I'm experienced, experienced, and to uh, have people mention to us that no, actually, that thing that you just said that was true ten years ago, but it's no longer true. So to keep up with uh, new developments, so um, I think that's really great. And one of the, you know, I don't want to be too self. Oh, this is the time. This is oh, yeah. No, not about me. As a, I mean, I'm as a field. 
Like, uh, you know, we do operate in a lot of relative data vacuums. You mm-hmm. know, it's the patients are complex. There's not the 10,000 person trial on statin A versus statin B, you know. And so there's a lot of art in there that I'm still learning. Usually there's more than one way to go about it, which is good. But that adds to this uncertainty and the reliance on people like you and other people who are really senior. You know, I've gotten, I've been name dropping like crazy on this, but there are many other people that I've, you know, watched from afar, looked at their styles on how they manage things, whether it's in person or on Twitter, honestly, like mm-hmm. uh, about how to go about these difficult cases. Yeah. Twitter has been a uh, godsend for uh, the medical part for transplant infectious disease. You know, there's a lot of things on Twitter that are not positive, but I've learned so much from my colleagues. And sometimes you can, in a, uh, in a HIPAA compliant fashion, put a question out there as to how would you treat such and such situation? And then you get people's opinions and, so, and oftentimes with, with references, and that can actually help your patients. And I've, I've actually talked to my patients in clinic. I said, you know, I actually didn't exactly know how to deal with your question. And I put it out there and this person in another state mentioned this new approach. And how do you feel about that? And uh, people are often thrilled for having their, um, their problem, not just stuck in a, in a silo, but that having a lot of people think about their problem again, in a HIPAA compliant fashion. Right. You get your second to 50th opinion. You can get that done. I mean, it also helps, you know, it, we all are in these silos or these relative ivory towers sometimes. And there's some maybe unspoken dogma about certain ways of doing things. And honestly, it's not usually shouldn't be said in the stone that some people may think it would be. Yeah. So can I ask you how you came up with your decision to uh, treat the patient with CMV colitis and that had been on Valgan, Cyclovir at full dose and at maintenance dose, and then broke through with CMV colitis and a very low level of viremia. And the decision had to be as to uh, what to do about that. Then you uh, decided to go with IV GAN Cyclovir. What are the uh, what are the things that went through your mind as you approached that? It's an interesting case. The first thing, and the team also brought it up, so that I came up with them out, is like, is this resistant? resistance um, because there was a good setup for it. A person who's had very heavy immunosuppression a little bit before this episode who had been on and off doses that varied of the Valgancyclovir, including its sort of subtherapeutic doses with an ongoing probable tissue invasive disease. So people were worried about resistance. That said, uh, you know, looking at the person and also the sort of the smell of things and, and thinking about work that others had done on the situations in which resistance would be higher on the list didn't really smell that way to me. You know, the viral loads were low. Person didn't look too bad. To me, it sort of seemed more like a person who needed some better delivery to the colon, mm-hmm. you know, with a drug that we know generally works. And if he could tolerate it, go with that. So I didn't do anything too fancy. I think I said like, hey, let's give this a try. He's stable. Uh, if we give him induction dosing of something that we are all very comfortable with and we see response, great. If not, we have other options and, mm-hmm. you know, older people with giving them phoscarded or, or, you know, switching to Marivivir or something with which I personally have less experience with. I didn't really feel like at least starting with that. Yeah. So, uh, treatment with IV against cyclovir, I think is a reasonable approach to somebody who has clinical failure. And as you mentioned, not a super high viral load and has uh, been on an oral regimen 
trying the IV. And then if that fails, then uh, phosphocarnate will be there for you. And it often also has to do with what your margin for error is. If somebody's super duper sick with a lung disease or with a CNS disease, then uh, maybe uh, waiting and, and seeing is less of an option depending on the individual situation. But in somebody that you have a margin for trying it out, then keeping them off of phosphocarnate, which can cause kidney toxicity, electrolyte abnormalities, then that's a good thing to do. Ribavir is merging as an oral option, very exciting oral option. Uh, a lot of patients that take it end up having uh, dyscusia, other uh, GI symptoms, and also the uh, insurance companies aren't uh, all that thrilled to pay for it. So um, it's an option, but I think that what was done in this particular situation is the rational approach and uh, the patient did well with that. And things we didn't mention are that this is a person who was also having weight loss issues and I didn't really want to interfere with their enteral intake with this possible just use the thing with and previously had insurance issues. Therefore, these are all things that flit in and out, I think, that end up weighing on the scales. Great summary. So now back to your uh, research and when I prepared for this, I, I knew that you were very active in research, but when I prepared for it, I put in uh, wearable William on PubMed and a ridiculous number of journals came up and articles and it came up and I was like, wow, are there like a lot of William wearables around that is, is that what's going on? But then uh, when I looked at the topics, I was like, no, this is our bill wearable. So how have you been able to be so productive in such a short period of time? So thanks. I guess it's not super rocket science. It's mostly opportunity related and that comes in a couple levels. First is obviously the pandemic, the interest in COVID-19 and just the nature of even people being wanting to see desperate for seeing incremental research that you can, if you can do that in relative real time, there's a definitely an, an appetite and it, it does help whether you're talking about responses or tolerability of interval, inter, you know, vaccine doses, for example, or, um, um, you know, clinical outcomes, people were very hungry. And that is, I think for, in a good way is shifting the reactions, the Redorian reactions happening where people want you know, meteor subjects, which is, I, I support. So that's number one. Number two was in terms of opportunity, the infrastructure and the research infrastructure at Hopkins was well primed to have somebody help push out content, you know, push out research works. And so I was able to basically get plugged into that mainframe and, you know, our colleague previously at Hopkins now at NYU, Dory Segev is really like a, a maven in a king and queen maker in research. It's somebody who developed a research infrastructure and enterprise that is huge, smart, and very nimble. He was more visionary than, than many in this and said like, hey, this is something we need to study in terms of, in, in this case, the content is a vaccine response to the SARS-CoV-2 vaccines in immunocompromised populations. He was like, we know how to do observational studies. We have smart analysts. We have smart ID doctors and, and surgeons and it's like, we can answer things in relative real time. And so his commitment to that and vision on that were also very critical. The opportunity of the content, the opportunity of being at Hopkins and the opportunity of having mentorship that was, would support me in doing that. And then the last thing is, you know, working maniacally. Myself and others have basically worked maniacally. I, I did, did, did things I don't necessarily recommend to young people in terms of doing research, you know sit making a lot of sacrifices personally to make that happen. I have two kids under three. I didn't take paternity leave basically for the second one, you know, things that 
because of things that were going on in terms of setting up clinical trials and things like that. So there are maybe things that are worth emulating and things that are not worth emulating in that. I think opportunity plus uh, work ethic probably gets you, gets you ready to be. Sure. And also sometimes in extraordinary times, you have to do extraordinary things in that it's not sustainable to work 18 hour days and be up with helping with a, a baby that's crying at night for years upon years upon years, but in a circumstance where the uh, medical world and patients are hungry and necessary for accurate information as to um, how to uh, handle the uh, problem that's in front of them, then it needs to be done. And you, as part of a team and as an individual, stepped into the breach. And I think that there's going to be a um, similar to the population that of doctors that came of age during the uh during HIV back in the um eighties and nineties and, and now are the uh the elder statesmen in uh the field of infectious disease. Your generation that came of age and, and, and during the uh COVID are gonna be similar in the years to come. So it's a huge cost, but I think that it is something that's uh it was necessary and also going to uh you weren't doing it to help your career. You were doing it because it was necessary, but it's gonna help your career. Yeah, I totally agree with that last comment. I'm I personally someone who's not, I mean, I, we all need to be focused on our career and academic advancement. I mostly am interested in the work, you know, the like good work, you know, things that are robust, things that move the needle uh, more so than, you know, pelts or something like on the wall. Yeah. Um, I think that's an important perspective, particularly because of the sort of intoxicating nature of like getting papers out or, you know, COVID, COVID, COVID. So that's definitely something I have to, when people need to check that, I would need to check myself on that time. So what are some of the uh, important findings that, that you've been involved with in terms of immune response to COVID vaccinations in uh, transplant patients, both if you can describe your findings and then the relevance and the implications for uh, uh, immunocompromised patients, particularly transplant and uh, bone marrow transplant patients? Sure. Yeah, I think one of the bigger distillations of all these papers is we know that humoral responses to the vaccines, particularly mRNA vaccines, which are used the most, are just very attenuated in certain subsets of transplant recipients. So in the beginning, the papers that were in JAMA that were led by Brian Boyarsky and then um, mentored by Doris Egev and Jackie Gronzik Wong were pretty stark. You know, instead of uh, a hundred percent of people seroconverting on an ant, a binding antibody assay against a spike protein in the healthy population it was like one out of six or seven in transplant recipients, and then after two doses it was under fifty percent. And we use antibody conversion all the time for other viruses and for vaccinations. So even though we didn't know the full connotation, demonstrating that very early, I mean, we had evidence for this in January of twenty twenty one that this was going on. Uh, that was like alarm signaling to say, like, we need to obviously back this up with potential clinical outcomes, but this is suggesting poor immune response in at least one major compartment that we know helps keep viruses out of your body. So that was one of the main things. And then I think simultaneously showing that the vaccines were well tolerated, there weren't autoimmune events that people were worried about. I think that was a concern originally. And then later helping inform phenotypes of people who did and did not have good antibody response. And that I now, I think is pretty well established. And we did some of the early work and that folks in across the world have demonstrated this in, in good 
in, you know, good studies that, you know, phenotypes of persons who are closer to transplant on higher dose mycophiliated in particular, people who take Bladicept, uh, those are people who are at highest risk for having poor vaccine response. And now we know there is a link between uh, antibody responses and susceptibility to infection that has been pretty well demonstrated. And so if you have a, I think now that you can look at a person, just their clinical demography and transplant medicines, and I think understand what the risk of not having high antibody responses. And those are people who room additional vaccine doses, boosters, passive immunoprophylaxis should be targeted. And you can hopefully now at least give them some evidence-based guidance on that. So I think that was some of the early takeaways from work over the, the first year. So clinical question that comes up a lot is somebody's had four vaccinations. Should they get a fifth, a transplant patient? Yeah, I think we, I partially beg, uh, pass the buck and obviously fall back to, you know, ACIP, well thought out population level recommendations, you know, for immunocompromised persons. And if they've met criteria, it's been three months since their last booster vaccine and they're eligible and we would recommend it. You know, part of the, the difficulty in answering these questions is the constant moving goalposts of both um, the virus itself and the immune escape it demonstrates, which informs the degree to which you need high antibody levels to protect from infection. That's constantly moving and particularly in the Omicron era becoming more and more immune evasive and the future being uncertain, but probably not better makes me always err towards saying, yes, if you're eligible, you should get a booster. You know, even if you don't have antibody, antibody data, you're just like, hey, probabilistically, even the general population, you know, vaccine associated, you know, antibody responses to tail off in the first couple of months to a level where you enter the risk period. So you should be somebody who's eligible. And the second is, of course, like community transmission and the waves upon waves, which are now happening with these sublineages of Omicron. So those also point us more towards Hey, you know, even if there's uncertainty or some degree of equipoise about you, the individual in front of us, you know, your cohort of people is at risk. So I tend to basically fall back on that. But then again, you, you can clinically phenotype people. Hey, if you were a younger liver transplant recipient on tacrolimus monotherapy, 10 years out from transplant, you've had four mRNA vaccines, your likelihood of having good immune response in multiple compartments is, is good. If you're a 72 year old organ, you know, lung recipient for IPF, who's on three drugs rejection six months ago, mm-hmm. you're looking at that person, you're like, you are at extraordinary risk. You should clearly get vaccinated, but you actually probably need augmented protection, whether that's Evusheld and obviously the non-pharmacological, non-pharmaceutical interventions like masking, reducing indoor um, exposures, et cetera. What about stopping or halting mycophenolate. There's been talk about that. I'm not a transplanter. I'm an infectious disease doctor, but how do you feel about that if it's feasible? That's a great question. So uh, we stop, as you know, or we're part of decisions on mycophenolate all the time. Usually it's because this person has leukopenia, GI upset, CFV, COVID-19. So we're comfortable doing that for a couple of weeks. And most people, there's rare as the the case in these scenarios usually for some autoimmune event after that. Mm-hmm. Um, again, we're not transplanters, but that's the case. So I think, and also women who are, you know, childbearing potential, you know, don't want to be exposed to the teratogen, stop it and get transitioned to different medicines. So I think we're comfortable with stopping it for weeks at a time. Mm-hmm. The 
transplant data on this are observational and small, but also reassuring as a group out of Germany led by Dr. Buda. Um, and I think Eva Scherzenmeiser and other people who published a paper in JCI Insight about mycophenolate hold for five or six weeks in persistent non-antibody responders, kidney transplant recipients showing improved responses and no new DSA or, or things like that. So in the small observational cohort setting also seems possible. And again, I think in the relatively, you know, low risk participant, it's something, uh, sorry, um, recipient is something that a transplant doctor should consider making a decision on. We're studying it formally now, uh, through a multi-center study called the CPAT immunosuppressive reduction study funded by the NIH, where Hopkins is the coordinating center to, across the country and low alloimmune risk liver and kidney recipients, formally randomized clinical trial vaccine versus vaccine plus a two, three week mycophenolate hold to see if that can give the lymphocytes a little chance to respond. And, you know, so I think that'll be the definitive, hopefully a definitive work in, in establishing that. And the last point would be that like, why are we, you know, do we even think it's going to work? And those data are, apart from the German study I mentioned, are mostly actually in like the autoimmune group. So the American College of Rheumatology explicitly recommends holding things like mycophenolate for a week or two around vaccination and have observed uh, in observational studies, good benefits. And in the trial setting, there were a recent paper looking at hold of ethotrexate to cousin in some ways did basically double at least the antibody response in that group mm -hmm. in, in, a, in a trial setting. So I think there's definitely, there's sound rationale behind it, but in terms of knowing for sure it's safe and effective, I don't think we're there yet. And I think that's tailored in why trials are, are necessary to fill in some of those blanks, because clearly there's a significant association between mycophenolate and both B and T cell impairments that affect mounting effective immune responses. And hence the 18 hour days to prepare those trials so that we can have the answers as quickly as possible so that doctors and patients know what the right thing to do is. Yeah, I think it's hard. It harkens back to some of the things we talked about. There is like sort of a wild west and silent aspect of transplant medicine. And I think there are probably groups that are doing some of these things. I know there are groups that are doing these things informally, but if we have opportunities, funding and interest to study things formally, we should take the opportunity, you know, and then these, this kind of paradigm may go beyond COVID-19 vaccines, right? I mean, what are we doing with influenza vaccines or other vaccines that are important with we see attenuated immune responses in those in high dose immunosuppression. So. And I think that uh, with the current technology that we have through some of the translational work that you and your colleagues are doing, then we can look at it in ways that are much more in-depth and much more comprehensive than in the past. Yeah, it's one of these glass half full aspects of the pandemic and that like the amount of rigor that's been poured into studying immune responses to or and outcomes of COVID-19 and the vaccines against it are, it's, it, you know, accelerated beyond so much that we've done previously. And that just shows you what money and intense interest can accomplish. So imagine if we applied this to CFV or some other thing that just bedevils us that we could maybe even fix. Sure. Sure. So in the last few minutes, uh, share some of your running resume with us. Oh, it's not, I mean, now I'm basically walking wounded, but the brief version is that like I was a pretty good runner just sort of randomly. I don't know why in high school, I think probably because I was 
thin. I got cut from the, I didn't make the varsity soccer team as a junior in high school. So I joined track and then they're like, oh, come run with us. And so I ran a 800 meter in like about two minutes, 30 or two minutes, 32 is the first one I ran. And they're like, oh, good. You should stick with that. And then I ran a, a mile couple months later, 451 is the first mile I ever ran. And they're like, oh, you should probably keep doing this. And they ran 444, 437, 431. So they're like, oh, you, this is what you should do now. And so that's, I just fell into it. And uh, that's how I ended up theoretically being someone who could uh, run in college and whatnot that didn't end up really working out. But my, the other hat I wore was if people wanted to run like a marathon, I just say they knew who I was, like these are friends. And I'd say, I'll run the last 15 with you. Mm-hmm. Like I run the last 18, I'll run the last 17. So I ran bus, bus marathon a couple of times, just the second half of it. Mm-hmm. I took people on training runs. And so I can't even do that anymore, but that was like my real second life of just someone who can run around for a while and not get too tired. Hey, so you've, you've gone up and down Heartbreak Hill a few times. A couple of times and then had to like duck and cover, you know, not accept the, the tinfoil blanket because I wasn't a real finisher. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Very nice. Very nice. And. A lot of people don't know that it's not actually Heartbreak Hill, it's Heartbreak Hills. Yeah, it's Rolling Pain. My, what is that? I remember 16, 18, I can't remember. Yeah, around there. And then uh, finally, it's mostly downhill until you uh, you hit the Prudential uh, and um, and then you're pretty close to being done. Thank you so much for uh, joining us, educating us, and look forward to uh, learning more about what you're doing in future podcast episodes and, of course, seeing you around the wards. Thanks so much, Mool. It was really fun. Appreciate it. Take care. So that's a wrap on episode seven. Thank you so much for joining us and look forward to connecting again in the future. Bye-bye.